This is The Guardian. Today, how the West African state of Ghana became a testing ground for some of the harshest anti-gay laws in the world. For The Guardian's West Africa correspondent, Emmanuel Akinwoto, the key to understanding this story is an event in Ghana's capital city, back at the start of 2021. A group called the LGBT Rights Plus Ghana inaugurated a community centre in Accra that was meant to be a safe space and physical place of community for LGBTQ plus people in Ghana. We already had a very strong online presence and one of our strategy was to also create a physical presence, a space where we can be able to mobilize and organize ourselves easily. Alex Kofi Donko is a Ghanaian gay rights activist, and he was there that day, along with many in Ghana's LGBTQ community. And he invited foreign dignitaries to come too, from Australia and the EU. Many of the people at the center saw it as really kind of a landmark moment. I'm very happy today to even be in a space like this. I didn't think it would ever happen that the LGBTQ people in Ghana would have a space to themselves that we can come here and feel like we belong. It was a day of joy. It was a day of incredible happiness. And it was a day of a fulfillment of a dream that we've hoped for for this number of years and also been working towards it. Even just the fact that I can order an Uber and put in LGBT rights and it would pop up. It was very big for me today, so I'm excited, I'm happy. It was a moment of celebration, a public display of pride and confidence from a new generation of gay and queer Ghanaians. They tend to be younger, more social media savvy, and upset at the way gay advocacy has been in Ghana. They are a lot more explicit. And the community space is an example of that. They declare that it's a community space for gay and queer people. And they felt that a more radical approach was needed to make people feel safe and to advocate for gay rights. The opening of the community centre felt liberating, but it was also a risk. And the backlash was almost instant. People were up in arms and groups called for it to be shut down, called for the police to arrest them. And that ended up being what happened. In February 2021, barely a month after opening, the community centre was shut down amid an outcry from religious and political leaders and a wave of threats and abuse. The reactions or the sentiments that were expressed by the general Ghanaian public were first of all, riddled with lots of misinformation. The people against the centre didn't see it as a resource for a marginalised community. They saw it as evidence of a foreign plot. It was very intentional, right? Because they were trying to play the card of a foreign import of LGBTQ, right? In a way that dismissed our efforts as equal Ghanaians who can create spaces for ourselves. It turned out to be a turning point. And That was, in a way, a new chapter in the relationship between LGBTQ plus people in Ghana and the state. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, 
Why is Ghana planning to bring in some of the world's harshest anti-gay laws? Emmanuel, has it always been difficult to be a gay or queer person in Ghana? Yes, it has. When you speak to campaigners and activists in the country, they would say that the abuse faced by gay and queer people in the country didn't always have the intention it deserved. Like in many African countries, the law prohibits it and gives the police and security forces a reason to extort abuse people who are suspected of being gay and queer. However, at the same time, this was something that wasn't policed as aggressively as we've seen in other places in Africa. And actually, I've spoken to some people in other countries who've said that Ghana was seen, and at least Accra, the capital of Ghana, was seen as a place where actually, if you're a gay, queer person, you'd go there and to chill and breathe and be a bit. They felt that that was a city that was a little bit more tolerant. And so the change in Ghana over the last 18 months has been extremely stark. And now actually, this is the scene of maybe the most kind of public anti-gay and queer campaign we've seen in the region. I mean, that's quite a swing to go from a place that did give people some space to be themselves to now be the centre of what sounds like a really terrible backlash. Absolutely. And there have been some kind of flashpoints leading up to this moment. But what really kind of propelled things further was the community space. It cemented in people's minds that actually there was a quote-unquote gay agenda. And and it also fed really neatly into a very common homophobic trope that you hear in Africa, which is that gay and queer identity is a Western import sponsored by Western countries to infect African culture that does not have any kind of history of gay and queer people. And the presence of foreign diplomats really fed right into that trope. Everybody on earth deserves the same human rights. And that's why the Australian High Commission stands by the LGBTIQ community here in Ghana. In Ghana, it's not safe to be part of the queer community for everyone. And that's something that's uh, it's quite sad. And everybody deserves to be safe. And I know that African cultures are cultures of tolerance, diversity, acceptance and participation. So actually, I know that here in Africa, being gay is not un-African. That's interesting that the presence of foreign diplomats actually had the effect of feeding a lot of these conspiracy theories, that there was a a foreign agenda to promoting spaces for for gay people in Ghana. And it sounds like those anti-gay forces in the country have been doing a lot of organising over the past few years. Can you tell me about some of that? What have they been doing and what impact has it had on Ghanaian society? In 2019, there was a conference on family values. And the conference was organised by a... Ghanaian group that has a really long acronym. It's called the National Coalition for Proper Human Sexual Rights and Family Values. And it's led by a guy called Moses Fo Amoni, who is maybe the biggest anti-gay advocate in Ghana. And he set up this conference alongside other non-Ghanaian groups. One was called the World Congress for Families, based in the United States, registered in the United States. And These groups work around the world 
and in Africa, promoting um, activism against things like abortion rights, gay and queer rights. And this conference happened in Accra in 2019 and really was in response to what they saw as a bad move to change or introduce what they saw as liberal thinking in the sexual education curriculum in the country. And they kind of woke up to this and felt that there was a need to stop this liberal march of gay and queer rights in education that could infect people's children and attack the concept of family in Ghana. And so in this conference, a lot of the speeches by Ghanaian um, members, but also American, European and others, was about how do we kind of stop this march? How do we effectively lobby government? How do we um, make sure that our laws prohibit any kind of move towards gay rights and things like that? And so now I say a lot of activists and campaigners in Ghana see that as a kind of seminal moment in the fight against LGBT rights in Ghana. And as I said, two years later, you see this community centers kind of start and the backlash is led by this group, the National Coalition of Proper Human Sexual Rights and Family Values. Emmanuel, these concerns that you talk about, the idea that schools are being used to push a gay agenda, sound really familiar. They sound like the kinds of debates that we see in American states like like Florida in recent months. And I'm wondering, how much do you think these foreign groups have played a role in this anti-gay backlash that you're telling us about in Ghana? They have been really effective at working with local groups that are against these types of rights, working with them to effectively lobby government and change the language and change and frame the debates in these countries to stir up public opinion and to make sure that lawmakers feel afraid to pass laws that will improve the rights of sexual minorities in any way. And so tell me about this private member's bill that's been introduced to parliament. What does it actually propose to do? So this bill does some things that we see in anti-LGBTQ plus legislation around the world, and then some things that we really haven't seen as much. On the one hand, people who are gay or are caught in gay acts can get up to five years in prison. It would come down against them. It would prohibit same-sex marriage, which... Is that even legal in Ghana? No, it's not. It's not even legal, but it kind of races ahead and addresses that. If that makes sense, and so it's a it's a bill that's looking at the situation now, and it's a bill that's presuming what gay and queer people would envision for Ghana and getting ahead to prevent it from happening, and so it does this on the one hand, but on the other hand, it goes much further than the scope of a lot of anti LGBTQ plus bills do. It criminalizes cross dressing, dressing in a way that's seen as against your sex. It criminalizes advocacy and it criminalizes advocacy in a way that even people in Ghana who are not sympathetic to LGBTQ plus people are concerned about. It would say the bill proposes that if you promote gay and queer acts in any way, you would be liable to up to 10 years in prison for advocacy. 10 years just for seeming to to promote gay people, to promote tolerance or, or acceptance of, of queer lifestyles. Absolutely. In fact, one of the things that Moses Fo'amone from the group that I would call NC has said is that gay and queer people are themselves doing things that are wrong. 
But the people who are really to blame are the people who promote this in Ghana. And that is, in effect, the target of the bill. Let's say an advocate group is organizing in your business or your home. You're also criminally liable too. And, and, and even further than that, if you are aware of gay and queer acts or gay and queer advocacy around you, and it's happening either in your proximity or on your business or property, you are also liable to report it to the authorities. And, and with not doing that also could leave you liable to prosecution as well. And it goes further, even further in saying that coming down on, on people like intersex people, it says that the government would be able to direct you to take gender realignment surgery under this legislation. And it's just really extreme and, and coming down on specific issues that weren't even really prominent in Ghana or weren't even being prominently expressed by campaigners in Ghana. And so people really see this bill as not only being shaped by the reality in Ghana, but being shaped by the discourse driven by groups that cut across countries around the world. Emmanuel, that's pretty ironic that this bill that was supposed to be about stopping the foreign agenda in Ghana might have been fueled in some way by, by, these, by the agenda of these foreign groups. In Ghana, the groups that are against LGBTQ plus people are well established. They are not necessarily being spurred to do this by foreign groups. They have their own kind of agency in this, but they have found a willing partner and an effective partner in groups that are much more effective at preventing this kind of thing from happening. And what about among the Ghanaian public? How much support is there for a bill that is so extreme, that potentially criminalises so many people, whether or not they're gay or queer or even just allowing gay people to live in their house? Ghana is a broadly religious country where people have broadly conservative social values. On the whole, people feel a, a degree of support for making sure that LGBTQ plus, quote unquote, agendas or aims are not a part or prominent part of mainstream society. But in, a, in, in another sense, I also think that a lot of people have not up until the last few years seen this as a major issue in the country. I've not necessarily been hugely animated by this or concerned about it because, again, the number of people who are LGBTQ plus in, in Ghana, is just, we're talking about a fraction of the population. But I think what has made people be much more aware of it, much more animated about it in the last few years, is this sense that actually gay, the gay rights agenda and again, in part driven by the West, is something that we have to take as a more serious threat in Africa, in Ghana. So how can a man marry a man? What the, what the essence of that? And I think if such a, anybody who fall into that uh, kind of uh, behavior should be dealt with, there should be law governing these particular issues. There's effectively been a state-backed campaign to kind of root out LGBTQ plus advocacy and culture in Ghana. That has seen people be arrested by the police. They've seen people suspected of being gay and queer being outed by ordinary citizens. And also they've seen even journalists lead kind of campaigns to shut down what they saw as gay training events or events supporting gay and queer people. And and so we're seeing this kind of like across the board in, in Ghanaian life in a more significant way than we've seen in the past.
And, and, and I think another part of it is this sense that there is a degree of pressure from Western countries to address gay and queer rights. That can have, in a way, counterproductive effect where actually people see it as a smoking gun. That, aha, you see, that's, that's actually the reason why we are seeing gay and queer rights in Ghana. It's being backed by foreign interests. And it ends up playing into these into this concern that some people have that Ghanaian culture is being hijacked by outsiders. Absolutely. And, and you know, it should be made clear that to make the, the kind of homophobic trope that gay and queer acts or culture is rooted in the West, when actually many of the laws that prohibit or, or come down on gay and queer people are inherited from colonial regimes that were run by Western countries, is clearly not the case. And actually... There is a, a long history of groups and practices in various African communities that are in different ways unorthodox in terms of gender, gender roles and sexuality. So, Emmanuel, what has this backlash and the prospect of such an extreme bill becoming law done to Ghana's gay and queer community? What's life like for them now? The backlash and the anti gay draft bill has led to more abuse, a surge in abuse, a surge in arrests, attacks against gay and queer people and people who are presumed to be or or suspected of being. Speaking to groups, advocacy groups and groups supporting gay and queer people in Ghana, they talk about this being a sharp rise since last January and a sharp rise, a sharper, even sharper rise since the bill was introduced. In these conditions, what are LGBTQ people doing to try to find shelter, like in situations where they're in extreme danger? Well, there are a network of groups that are doing phenomenal work, helping um, people who have suffered from this broad campaign. They are putting people in safe houses. They are helping people who have lost jobs, who have been disowned by their families. They are offering them support, psychosocial support and monetary support as much as they are able to. The people running these safe houses must be taking a huge risk. How are they doing that? So they are able to get funding from different groups and essentially put people up in homes and apartments spread around different parts of the country just to get them as far away as possible from their home communities. Last year, I met someone who I'll call Jonathan. He was arrested among 21 people who were arrested by police at an event training paralegals to help minorities, that journalists had raided the event and accused them of all of being gay. Police then followed up and detained them for months before they were released. He was being detained um, in a really squalid police cell, suffering mentally, talking to me about how the other people in the training had already been disowned by their families, had already been contacted by their employers not to come back. And over the last year, over a year since that arrest, he has been helping other people, helping to put people um, or coordinate people being in safe houses or protect people who have been in abusive or uncomfortable positions. And I spoke to him earlier and he told me about cases of people who were being put in safe houses 
you know, up until the last few days and weeks and how they do a lot of work to try and make sure that these people feel safe and protected, but that the risks are multiplying, uh, especially since the bill last year. They see that as really being a driver of a lot of the abuse that they're seeing now. And they see that because they think that even though the bill hasn't passed, even though the bill is still in parliament, it has legitimized homophobic attacks in a fresh way. Coming up, the anti-gay bill is still a draft, but how likely is it to become law? Emmanuel, things sound really tough for the gay and queer community in Ghana, but I'm wondering, are they trying to fight back against this law? Like, do they have any space to make arguments to people against it? A really interesting element to this has been the public hearings for the bill. So the bill is in Parliament, and since late last year, up until just a few weeks ago, there were hearings where members of the public are allowed to go to Parliament and to put forward memos and make comments about the bill. And so you have people kind of coming into Parliament making, you know, motions in support for the bill or comments in support of the bill. But it's also given an amazing opportunity, I think, for advocacy groups that are trying to shut down the bill to come forward and to talk about how this bill would be a threat to many people in Ghana. In my view, the very totalitarian reach, extraordinarily totalitarian reach of this bill suggests that if this bill is allowed to see the light of day to become law, it would send this country back many decades, if not centuries. And what about outside parliament? I mean, how are gay and queer Ghanaians trying to speak to other members of the public directly, try to convince them that this bill is a complete threat to their existence? There have been, you know, on the one hand, people are, have used parliament and these hearings to make the case against the bill, but also in, on social media and in various other ways. There was a song by one of the first, if not the first, openly trans person in Ghana, Angel Maxine. She released a song called Wafier last year that really kind of went viral this year. It's been kind of a viral sensation on TikTok, in part because of lines of the song that have really galvanized people in this space. There's a kind of popular part where she says, your driver could be LGBTQ. Your driver could be LGBTQ. Your tailor could be LGBTQ. Hairdresser could be LGBTQ. Your plumber could be LGBTQ. Your doctor could be it's a, it's a really like upbeat, defiant, carefree song. And in, in that kind of joy and defiance is it's really radical in that it is directly addressing ordinary people in Ghana, saying that these people exist and, and have a right to exist. Emmanuel, how likely is it that this bill will actually become law, that, that not just being gay, but promoting it, allowing gay people to, to live in your house, all of that will become illegal in Ghana? I think it's likely. The bill as it is currently constructed is very extreme, is currently in parliament, and it might be the case that 
during this rare, this parliamentary process that many of the more extreme clauses in the bill uh, get amended. In recent days and weeks, a few politicians have started to speak up against the bill, saying that, you know, it's not necessary, it's going against people's rights, we should kind of live and let live. I don't subscribe to gays as a choice, because uh, I'm not attracted by that. But I don't want to go into people's bedroom. I don't want to see what they are doing. And those, those MPs have faced a lot of backlash, but I think it kind of shows that there is a part of parliament that thinks maybe the bill does go too far. So it wouldn't be a surprise to see the bill change in some way. However, when the bill does eventually get to parliament to a vote, I think most people expect it to pass because the majority of MPs, it's widely believed, would be in favour of legislation like this, even if it is not as extreme as the current bill proposes. At that point, it would be the president's decision. The bill would go to the president, Nana Kufo Ado, and he would uh, either assent the bill or reject it and send it back to parliament. And that is what we can't say for certain. He's facing pressure from his own base that is largely conservative religious to make sure that this bill comes forward. But he is also facing pressure from rights groups, from the diplomatic community and other groups who would say that a bill like this, maybe one of the most repressive anti-gay laws we've seen in Africa being signed under your watch, would do some damage to his own legacy and to how the country is perceived around the world. Emmanuel, it sounds like whether or not this bill passes, it's fair to say that the damage has already been done to gay and queer communities in, in Ghana. They're already in hiding. They have to look over their shoulders. They fear being themselves in public. Their lives have, have already become much, much worse than they were. Definitely. That's something that you hear all the time, that actually whether or not this bill passes, some of the damage has already been done. It has signaled to parts of society that it's open season on gay queer people. And the bill passing would only exacerbate that, but you know, that's a reality people are having to face right now. Emmanuel, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Michael. That was Emmanuel Akinwoto. You can follow all his reporting on this story at theguardian.com. We approached the Ghanaian Police and Interior Ministry for comment, but at the time of recording, they hadn't responded. The World Congress of Families also did not respond to our questions. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Joe Glanville with assistance from Anoa Abeka Mensah. Sound design was by Axel Kakoutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.